0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, so about a week and a half ago or so on a Wednesday night, we, uh, we started a uh, just sort of a brief uh, introduction to the prophets. We called it the story of the prophets. And... Um, Let me just give a brief review for those that that weren't here. So um, the prophetic literature is is really sort of some of the most hardest uh, passages to understand in the Old Testament. And so when we think of the prophetic literature, um, we're talking about the major and the minor prophets, all right? And so, um, whether it is um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or the Twelve, so in Hebrew Bible, Minor Prophets makes up one book. It's just the Twelve, and they're connected together. I think in the in a way that I wish we could take time to kind of go through. There's there's actually there's actually uh, intentionality in the way that, that the minor prophets are put together. Um, and so as we come to this this major section, I mean, just think about how much space the major prophets and the minor prophets take up in the Old Testament. And so as we come to this, uh, it's important for us to kind of have uh, a framework to understand the prophetic literature. So Martin Luther, who always said things that were um, sometimes bold, sometimes just almost crazy sounding, said um, about reading the prophets, he said, and these are his words, um, the prophets just have a queer way of talking, of course, queer meaning strange, odd, and you don't know where their sermons begin, you don't know where they end, and you usually don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and um, if you've ever just plowed through Isaiah, for instance, and you get to a whole string of oracles, it just—he goes from Tyre to Sidon to Babylon. And he's using language that seems really strange. Or then, if you really want to have your mind boggled, you can start reading Ezekiel. And you're thinking, is he talking about UFOs? What is he talking about? And, um, and then you get to the minor prophets. And, and uh, overall, the minor prophets are, uh, in a sense, a little more straightforward. Although there are some, for instance, like Zechariah which is unbelievably difficult. Unbelievably difficult because of the use of apocalyptic imagery. Um, One of the things that makes the prophets also difficult is that they use different forms of oracles. So a prophetic oracle may be three verses, it may be three chapters, and there are forms to these prophetic oracles that actually if you understand the form kind of a better grasp of what the prophet is doing. And so we started this and uh, we we mentioned that the uh, the prophets are built on the on the covenantal foundation of the law of Moses. And so um so we started with Moses as the fountainhead of of what we just call prophetism, that is the prophetic movement in Israel. And he's the fountainhead of all prophetic ministry. He's the head of the stream. If you would ask Old Testament Jewish person who's the greatest of Israel's prophets, they would not have said Isaiah. They would not have said Elijah. They would have said Moses. Moses is the the preeminent prophet, of the Old Testament. We spent quite a bit of time actually demonstrating um, how how that was true in a number of different ways. So Moses, first of all, was a unique revelatory spokesman. God actually makes it a point in Numbers 12, Exodus 33, that he actually speaks with Moses in a way that he speaks with nobody else. Okay? in fact, when, um, when Aaron and Miriam expressed a little bit of jealousy, um, actually it was under the presenting problem of Moses had married an Ethiopian, but really their issue was not that. Their issue was that they were jealous of Moses. What, are you the only one? Now remember, they're siblings, okay? you the only one that God speaks through? And so God, uh, like a father, says, okay, you three out here right now. And what God says to to the two complainers, Aaron and Miriam, is I speak to the prophets. I give them dreams. I give them visions. But with Moses, I speak to him as a man speaks to a friend face to face. Literally mouth to mouth. And so Moses is absolutely unique as far as a prophet in terms of Israel's history, but there's also a sense where Moses then establishes the standards of for all the prophets, right? So if, if you're the prophet that then establishes the standard for all subsequent prophets, you actually are a unique prophet, right? And so Moses lays down the rules for what constitutes a true prophet, what constitutes a false prophet, okay? By the way, something that's totally worth remembering, how many times did it take to, uh, for you to be wrong in order to be a false prophet? Just once, okay, just once, you know, unlike the so-called phony prophets of today that think if they hit about 50%, they're pretty good. Um, in, in the Old Testament, it's, you, you get it wrong once, you're done, and I mean like done, done, all right? If you lead people astray, right? And notice it's very interesting. uh, False prophets could actually perform signs and wonders, but if the message was false, the signs and wonders were false signs and wonders in that they led people astray, right? And so Moses establishes that, by the way, capital punishment for those that were incorrect. So the Old Testament is frequently described as Moses and the prophets, okay? Sometimes the term law is kind of put in the place of Moses, but you have this expression, Moses and the prophets, all right? So Moses is the fountainhead of all prophetic ministry in Israel, and then there is uh, the covenant is the basis for the prophetic ministry, so what the prophets do, so if you were to ask like the normal person who maybe has some minimal exposure to the Bible, what did the prophets do? Most people would say, oh, they foretold the future. Okay, Right? Prophet, foretelling the future. The, the fact is, is that that was not even close to the primary function of the Old Testament prophets. Okay, Did they actually... Um, foretell coming events, and the answer is yes, but the primary function of the prophets was not actually to tell people what was going to happen. It's not as if they were some sort of inspired soothsayer, right? The prophets, first of all, are steeped in Torah, right? The prophets, therefore, The ministry, that and this again goes back to Moses. So you've got Moses who is in this elevated position, and then you have all the other prophets. All the other prophets are completely dependent on Moses. They're steeped in Torah, and not only are they steeped in Torah, but they end up taking on a role. If you want to know what the primary role of the prophet is, it was this. They were a covenant enforcer. They were a covenant prosecutor. They weren't out there just actually saying, um, you know, like Nostradamus, you know, there's going to be an earthquake in three years on Mother's Day, right? That wasn't the point. The point was, is that the covenant actually uh, consists of covenant curses and covenant blessings. You... By the way, you can't understand, and this is no exaggeration, you can't understand the Mosaic Covenant unless you understand Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 where you have the outline of the covenant curses and the covenant blessings. By the way, it is that very structure of covenant curses and covenant blessings that actually ends up creating the framework for all that the prophets will say. Now, when you think about covenant blessings, what did you have to do? And don't say nothing. My dad was like, who was that guy that kept saying nothing? I go, who do you think that guy was? He got it on first guess. (laughs) So what do you have to do to earn the covenant blessings? Obey, okay? Actually, it's pretty simple. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. So if you obey, here are the blessings. And those blessings are agricultural, right? Um, your crops won't fail. You're, you will have your own fig tree, your own vine. Um, and that was the way that those covenant blessings were, 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 were framed. And so then you have covenant curses, right? Now, this is sort of a, a tricky part. What did you have to do to incur the curses of the covenant? Okay, so disobey is our first impulse, okay? You invoke the curses when you disobey. And I want to say that that's not altogether true, okay? Yeah, yeah, so... Why isn't just disobedience, why doesn't that just incur? Well, because God actually has a built-in remedy for disobedience. Right? In the old covenant. And what was that? (laughs) Priesthood and sacrifices. So if I'm disobedient, okay, then I've got Yom Kippur, I've got a priest that I can take my lamb to, uh, you know or my two turtle doves or whatever the case may be and so the curses of the covenant actually didn't just come on people that were disobedient they came on people that were that were unrepentant of prolonged disobedience that was typically marked by idolatry and injustice okay so idolatry so think about this how is idolatry in terms of the covenant, how is idolatry often expressed? Adultery, okay? Adultery. Why? Because what was expected of Israel was covenant fidelity. Covenant infidelity, is not, which would take place as, uh, through idolatry, was expressed through adultery. In fact, the language that sometimes is used in the prophets especially is you're, you're whoring after other gods. Okay. Spear, uh, uh, covenant infidelity is put in terms of whoredom. Okay. And you know what's funny is I was, I was doing these notes and, and, and of course I did prophets in Zambia and I, I, put, I typed in whoredom and you know how word is always telling you what to do. Um, maybe somebody can help me turn this feature off. Little thing comes up. You might want to choose a different word. This word may actually be offensive to some. Okay? <laughs> okay, well, let me just say that's the point. <laughs> that's the point is that idolatry is put in terms of whoredom. Why? Because that's the way that God looks at the idolatry of the people. And then, of course, injustice. And so what you have is you have a, in a sense, impenitent, prolonged, a violation of the first great commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which manifests itself in idolatry, and then you have a prolonged, impenitent violation of the second great commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, and that manifests itself in in taking advantage of widows and orphans and the poor and strangers. In other words, injustice, right? So what do the prophets do? Well, the prophets actually are called by Yahweh to do what? To call people back to through repentance back to covenant fidelity. Right? That's their job. That is what they're called to do. And so they're prosecutors of the covenant, right? Because the covenant is what? The covenant is actually a legally binding arrangement. Okay? Now, it's more than that. Just like mar- is marriage more than a legally binding arrangement? Yes. Is it less than that? No. When you get married, you actually, of course, there should be love. There should be affection. But you're also entering into something that is legally binding, sealed, a covenant sealed with vows. Okay? And so covenant prosecutors, the prophets, they were like prosecuting attorneys, okay, and they would actually bring the case against Israel. So one of the kinds of oracles that's most common is called the Reeve oracle or a lawsuit oracle, where the prophet, as God's prosecutor, lays out the evidence of a broken covenant, right? Lays out the sins, And then lays out the impending punishment and then calls for repentance. That is, in a sense, the the message of the prophets. And so it's the curses of the covenant that end up doing what? End up shaping the message of judgment in their ministries. So um, when uh, when I teach the guys in Zambia on Old Testament prophets, we do this exercise where Um, So this this time we took Joel 1 and Isaiah 1. I give them a list of of the categories of covenant curses. There's like 25 categories. And I have them go through Joel 1 where they identify every time God makes an appeal to a curse of the covenant. And you know what you have? You have one in almost every single verse. That's what they're doing. They're prosecuting the people for their covenant infidelities. And then, on the basis of the covenant violations, they they are then telling them, if they don't repent, this is the judgment that's going to come, or sometimes it's the judgment that's happening to us right now is because this is what we've done, and there's still a call to repentance, all right? And so it is the covenant curses that form the message of judgment, but it's also the covenant blessings that, in a sense, shape the message of salvation and grace. So the message of the blessings of the covenant point to a future time of restoration, a future time of covenant blessing, and that often is put in terms of salvation. All right. Now, here's one of the interesting things. Um, and, and if you were here a week and a half ago, I apologize for getting too immersed in the review. But if you um, read the prophets carefully, what you find out is the promises of restoration are almost always simply contingent on God's initiative, not the people's repentance. Repentance. Does God require the people to repent? The answer is yes. But if they turn, it's God who's turned them, right? If they they return to the Lord. And so one of the problems that you see with the people is they'll say good things, you know. So, for instance, one of my favorite examples is in the book of Hosea, which will Lord willing, preach through before I die. And um, one of the things, that so, so Israel says, let us return to the Lord. If he has torn, he will heal, right? Let us return to the Lord and seek him. And maybe on the third day, he'll raise us up. And you read that and you go, wow, that is really good. Sounds good. And then God turns around and he says, Ephraim, your loyal love to me is like the morning dew right? So the people never repent like they're supposed to repent. And so guess what? The promises of blessing and salvation based on the, on the covenant blessings often simply are nothing more than God himself intervening and taking the initiative. And I want to just say, every single one of us should be really glad. How long would God wait? If he were to say, this bug is going to meet its maker, there we go. How long would God wait if he just said, All right, as soon as you get your act together and come back to me, I'll restore you? He'd still be waiting so the message of the blessings is actually the message of God's sovereign grace. All right. So that brought us to the historical and canonical story of the prophets. And so since I don't even remember what these slides... Oh, here we go. Um, Oh, we already covered that. Um, We already covered that. Um, You can't read that. So we'll go to that. All right. So... We, we, we think of the prophets, we have to think about them historically, how they fit into the, the flow of history. So, the previous slide that's going to be too tiny for you to read actually locates the prophets in terms of um, were they to the northern kingdom or southern kingdom? By the way, prophetism itself uh, explodes after the division of the kingdom. All right? You had prophets before that, obviously, but it is after the division of the kingdom under Rehoboam that you end up having the explosion of prophetic ministry in Israel. Um, it really, in a sense, um, you can look at uh, to northern kingdom or southern kingdom or both, and then you count down from 8th century B.C., then down to uh, basically 4th century B.C. And so then, and then this is the important part, every prophet you have to look at in relationship to the exile. In fact, the way that we divide the prophets up is either pre-exilic, exilic, exilic, or post-exilic, right? So if they're prophesying, and so two important dates... 722 BC is the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom, all right? And then 586 is the final destruction of Babylon of the southern kingdom. So all of the prophets are in relationship to either before the exile, during the exile, or after the exile. So knowing where they fit helps you understand actually, in a sense, some of the content of what they're prophesying about, all right? And so keeping them, um, by the way, you've got three prophets that don't prophesy to either the northern or southern kingdom. Anybody remember? What's that? Jonah. Jonah prophesies to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, Jonah prophesies against Nineveh and, of course, by the way, there's a lot we could say about Jonah, okay? We think that, okay, well, he just ran away because he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Uh, No, he actually was willing to sacrifice himself for the salvation of his people. If Nineveh or Assyria is the biggest threat... And God sends him to preach repentance to Nineveh. What, is, what does Jonah want more than anything? He wants, he wants the Assyrians destroyed. Their destruction is Israel's salvation. Okay. So he's not running away because he's like some scaredy cat. Okay. And so he prophesies to Nineveh. You have another prophet that prophesies to Nineveh a hundred years later. Nahum. Jonah, by the way, this is Jonah's message, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown, right? They repent. 100 years later, Nahum is actually now prophesying the judgment of, uh, of uh, Nineveh because whatever happens in that intervening 100 years, they went from a posture of repentance towards Israel's God to then persecuting uh, uh, Israel all over again, and so you have a message of repentance and salvation with Jonah, you have a message of judgment with Nahum, and then you have one more prophet that doesn't prophesy to the northern or southern kingdom. It's your favorite, Obadiah. Right? Obadiah, one chapter. Obadiah is, a, is an oracle of judgment against Edom. Edom are the descendants of who? Esau. From a Jewish perspective, Edomites are our brothers. Edom mocked, scorned, and ridiculed Judah as it was being sacked by Babylon. And the book of Obadiah is is a book of judgment against Edom because they Loaded over Judah's destruction, all right? Everybody else, either to Israel or Judah, all right? So that brings us then to the third, or the, the at least the next, and that is actually the story of Hebrew Bible, all right? And so um, I still, I, I'd love for uh, Charlie and Daniel and me to do a collaborative lesson on the story of Hebrew Bible, okay? Hebrew Bible is a different canonical order than English Bible, okay? There's a story that happens with Hebrew Bible, all right? Hebrew Bible is um, is in three parts. You have Torah, and uh, so here are the three parts, Torah, Nevaim, Vakatavim, all right? Which is Torah, the prophets and the writings. Okay? Right? So Torah, which is going to be what books? Okay. What books? The first five. The Pentateuch. That's Torah. Okay? It's foundational. Then you go to the next, which is the prophets. Prophets in Hebrew Bible are divided into two different categories. Former prophets and latter prophets. Now, notice what happens. Under the former prophets, you have Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. Now, what's interesting about that flow of... Now, we think of those as the historical books, okay? Hebrew Bible puts them under the category of the former prophets. They're telling a story. What's the story of Joshua. What's that? Okay, con- conquest and settlement of the land. What's the story of Judges? By the way, did those two go, did those two flow together? Yes. Story of the Judges. How awesome Israel was doing in the land, right? <laughs> how, they were, how they were walking in covenant obedience and evangelizing the nations while driving them out and slaughtering them. And no, it, actually the book of Judges has bookends. Everyone, during the time of the Judges, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And so God raises up Judges, and these Judges deliver. And these Judges are, how often are the Judges heroic? Very rarely. Like the only guy that's like really heroic gets like one verse to him. That's it, you know. Everybody else, I mean, like Samson. Samson is, Samson's an anti-hero, okay? By the way, never tell your kid, hey, grow up and be like Samson. <laughs> you, you don't say to your kid, hey, make vows like Jephthah. <laughs> right? Okay. I mean, the best guy in the whole thing is a, is Ehud, who's a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin, which is son of my right hand. It's supposed to be funny. All right? Ehud was a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin, son of my right hand. Okay. So even, even Ehud is defective, right? I'm not saying left-handed people are completely defective, but let's just, so, of course, what does he do? He actually goes, he actually, uh, kills Eglon in, in one of the little boy book of Judges, by the way. It's blood and guts and, and, um, and actually, if you, if you do have a hero in the book of Judges, guess, guess who the heroes end up being? Women! amazing right you've got deborah she actually delivers israel she actually is she walks in integrity um and then of course what happens during during that um so you've got Barak or if you want to avoid that barack and um you got to be quick in sunday school And of course, he won't go out to battle unless Deborah goes with him, right? Whoa, what a brave guy. I'm not gonna go fight unless the chick goes with me, right? And so um, then you've got Sisera, who's the evil guy, right? And he goes and he's routed. He finds refuge in a tent, occupied by Yael, jail, Now, you might think this sounds a little sketchy, but I'm going to tell you, there's something redemptively glorious about it. Here, lay down on this nice uh, Cabela's air mattress. It's very comfortable. Here, nice little Gore-Tex fleece, a blanket, and um, it, by the way, here's a little goat milk. Just rest. I'll keep a lookout. What does she do? She gets a tent peg, and while he's exhausted and sleeping, she puts it up against his temple, takes a hammer, and rams it through. Okay? You go, that's awful. I say, redemptively, she nailed it. Okay, it's gruesome. Okay, it's gruesome. But guess what? The woman is a head crusher. Does that sound familiar to you? The woman is a head crusher. By the way, when Abimelech actually, who makes an accession to the to the throne illegitimately, as a son of Gideon, guess how he dies. A woman actually delivers the whole city. How? By dropping a millstone over the wall and crushes his head. By the way, any time a head is crushed in the, in the Bible, you should pay close attention. And when it's a woman that crushes the head, you should pay, pay twice as much attention. And so here you have a book about Israel's history that's absolutely... A, it, is, it is a dark period of Israel's history. And the darkest period is actually with the two stories of the priest and then the Danites and is absolutely horrific. But it actually tells you how bad Israel had gotten. Where? In the land. That's the irony. They're in the land. And they are absolutely unfaithful. So then you go to Samuel. Samuel is the story of what? What's that? Rise of the monarchy. And guess what Samuel distinguishes himself as? Is Samuel a judge? The answer is yes, Samuel's a judge. But guess what Samuel distinguishes himself as? He distinguishes himself as Israel's prophet. Okay? And so you have the rise of the monarchy. How does that go? Well, I mean, except for the first guy, right? You got the second guy. You go from Saul, who's a head and shoulders above everybody else loser, and then you go to David. David's Israel's salvation, except guess what? At the end of the day, he fails, right? And so, so you've got the story of Samuel, which is, which is both, which is in a sense, is the beginning of the monarchy, and, and in a sense, sort of the golden age of Israel, and it really wasn't all that golden. And then you end up with kings. And kings gives you, by the way, in Hebrew Bible, it's not first and second kings, it's just kings. It's really long. And what does kings do? It picks up the story. It picks up the story. It picks up the story where Samuel leaves off. Same thing, not first and second Samuel, just Samuel. And it picks up where, so you end up having uh, the reign of Solomon kicking off the book of kings. And then you start to realize by, by chapter 9 and 10 that, that Solomon actually is not, is not a greater David. He may be greater in money, he may be greater in other things, but he's not the great king that was anticipated from the Davidic covenant, and so then the whole history of kings is, is what? It's dismal. How many good kings do you have in the north? Zero. Zero. Not a single one. By the way, none of them are sons of David. How many, how many good kings do you have in the southern kingdom? You can count them on one hand. And then the ones that do start off well don't always end up well. Right? And so the book of kings winds down. And how does the book of kings end? Exile. By the way, exile is the ultimate curse of the covenant. Actually taken out of the land and removed and sent away from that which represents God's presence. Just like Adam was exiled, Israel's exiled. And so the book of Second uh, our Second Kings ends, and how does it end? Charlie. Okay, so the storyline from book to book is telling the story, all right? Now, and actually, I listened to Charlie's Sunday School while I was in Zambia, and it was absolutely encouraging to me because this is precisely what I was talking to the guys about. And so if you turn to the Second Kings... So, by the way, the Babylonian, the Babylonian captivity and exile actually ends up happening in a number of stages. You have, you have these deportations, Babylonian deportations. That's how Daniel and his three friends get into Babylon, all right? It um, starts in 605 and then winds down. 586, dest- total destruction. So, guess what ends up happening? So, if you look at... Chapter twenty-four: Babylon controls Jehoiakim. That's the title in my Bible, and then it says Jehoiachin reigns, and then deportation to Babylon. All right, so just start at verse. Ten, if you will at that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon went up to Jerusalem and the city came under siege Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon came to the city while his servants were besieging it Jehoiachin the king of Judah went out to the king of Babylon he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials so the king of Babylon took him captive in the 8th year of his reign okay so let me just say that if you are a Jewish person in Judah this is this is a bad day your king has been exiled. So if your king is exiled, and if you're, if you're a Jewish person steeped in the Old Testament and your king is exiled, what, is, what are you thinking? What are you wondering? Here's what you're wondering. What happened to the promise made to David? What Would that not be one of the most natural questions as As Judah is being invaded, put under siege, and then your king is taken out, you'd be asking yourself, what in the world has happened to the promise that God made to David? Verse 13, he, Nebuchadnezzar, carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said, this is getting worse and worse by the men the very things that God had given specific instruction on how to make Nebuchadnezzar is now stealing them and then cutting them into pieces actually defiling the very pattern that God had given he laid he, then he led away into exile all Jerusalem all the captains all the mighty men of valor 10,000 captives, all the craftsmen and the smiths none remained except the poorest people of the land and so now what? not only is your king gone but what's happened to the promised land The temple's destroyed. Who's left? The poorest of the poor. What's happened to my inheritance? By the way, one of the reasons why land is sacred is because it actually reflected God's God's inheritance that he gave to Abraham and to his descendants. And so if you're in exile and you've been taken out, now all of a sudden the very idea of your very inheritance is is not only threatened, but the the, the hope of it is smashed. Verse 15: So he led Jehoiachin away into uh, exile to Babylon. And the king's mother, the king's wives, all his officials, the leading men of the land, he led them away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. These, the king of Babylon, brought to exile to Babylon. So, how would you describe the situation? Absolutely hopeless. The very people that you would rely on to actually intervene are all taken off to Babylon. Then verse 17. Then the king of Babylon made his uncle, mathaniah king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem, 11 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libanon. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiachin had done, right? So this is, this is like the worst possible situation. It is absolutely hopeless. Now, just turn to the to the end, because we don't have time to go through all this. So where's Jehoiachin? He's in exile in Babylon. Now, it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of David, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that, that Evel, or Evil, uh, Merodot, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison, and spoke kindly to him, and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and had his meals. In the king's presence regularly all the days of his life, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day all the days of his life. You know, that's a weird way to end a sad story, right? It's a really weird way to end a sad story. Let me just remind you Jehoiachin is the son of David. Okay? And who does Jehoiachin sound an awful lot like in this in this last paragraph of the book of Kings? Somebody just said it. Mephibosheth, yeah. But who does who does Jehoiachin look like here? Who do you know was actually taken into captivity, kept in prison, and then actually elevated up above all the kings, and then given a change of clothes? Joseph. Do you think that it's any accident that the storyline? Ends with a son of David in captivity, released from captivity, and actually elevated, sits at the king's table, given all of the blessings. And now, what was Joseph's great accomplishment? He saved Israel. And so the the storyline, even though it enters into the darkest period of Israel's history, it ends on a note of of, of glimmering hope. A son of David is elevated in a foreign land just like Joseph. And think about what Joseph did for our people, all right? Right? Is that a fair summary, Charlie? All right. Okay, now, boy, this is the longest review I've ever done. So you go from the former prophet. So you you see what I mean? So there's a storyline, right? Storyline breaks with exile, okay? Then what happens? You get to the latter prophet's. The latter prophets are doing what? The latter prophets are making inspired prophetic commentary about Israel and Judah's infidelities that are going to lead to what? That are going to lead to the exile, right? So in other words, think of it this way. You've got the gospels that actually describe for us the history and the life of Jesus, right? What do the epistles do? In a sense the epistles actually explain for us the significance of those events, right? That's what the prophets are doing. They're explaining the history, uh, the significance of Israel's history, they're explaining the significance of the curses ending in exile and they're also giving messages of hope. Right? That's what they're doing. And then, latter prophets, you got the 12. And then you get back to the writings. The writings also give. Commentary. Why? Because they're spread, by the way, throughout all of Israel's history of what you have in the former prophets. And so you have the Psalms. Do you have any Psalms that are written before exile? The answer is yes. Do you have Psalms that are written in exile? The answer is yes. Do you have Psalms that are written after the exile? A few. And so here you end up having the Psalms. And what is what are the Psalms? Israel's hymn book, of course, but also a commentary on what an individual believer's would go through in the life of Israel. Then you move to Job, right? So Job, does Job advance the storyline of Israel's history? No. It gives us a picture of an individual at the very beginning, probably at this time of Abraham. Then you've got Proverbs, right? Does Proverbs advance the storyline? No, it gives you wisdom to know how to live. Guess what? How to live when things aren't going very well. And then, how does, pro- Dan, I, I, I owe this to Daniel. Give credit where credit's due. How does the book of Proverbs end? Okay, Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman. Look at the very next book in Hebrew Bible. It's the story of a virtuous woman in Israel who wasn't an Israelite. And of course, what is, what is the main theme of this story? Okay, Not how to get a husband when you're desperate. It's not the point. It's not, um, <laughs> we could go on, right? Uh, you know, how to Never mind. So, but guess what? You have a virtuous woman who's not an Israelite who becomes the great-grandmother of King David. Okay? It doesn't advance the storyline, but it gives us a picture of a virtuous woman who's not an Israelite, who's in the Messianic line and then you go to song of songs so why go just take a guess why go to song of songs right after ruth what happens in ruth what's that M- marriage of boaz and ruth okay song of songs which by the way is far more far more Complicated than we have time to get into. It is extolling a marriage, right? And um, is is the marriage depicted in Song of Songs? Does that give us insight into the divine creation of marriage? Yeah. Could you study the Song of Songs? And glean things that apply to marriage. Okay. Uh, Ruth—it's uh, written way after Ruth. Okay. okay. So could we? Pre- so let's just say that I was actually brave enough to preach Song of Songs. I don't know if I am or not. Could there be things that you go, yeah? You know what? This depicts marriage. There's there's good observation here. Of course. Of course. But is that what the book's ultimately about? No. It's about a different marriage. A better marriage. Okay? And so, again, more commentary. Um, you get to Ecclesiastes, of course, you all know what that's about, and then Lamentations. Why does Lamentations get stuck in here? Well, because Lamentations is actually the book that actually laments the destruction of Jerusalem, and then it, then it ends with Esther. Why, does, why do the latter, uh, uh, or the, the, the writings, actually, why do they end at that point with Esther? And the answer is, Esther's living in exile, Okay? You, are you seeing the way this is fitting together? Okay? Okay. You got an extra hour of sleep. I would expect just a little bit more sanctification and ability to. So then, there's a re- uh, the, the storyline resumes, and here's the interesting thing. Daniel's not listed among the prophets. He's the historical book, and it resumes with the people of God in exile. So obviously, Esther and Daniel fit together, all right? And they pick up the story in a sense. So, by the way, I've preached through Esther twice, all right? Is Esther, this is a trick question, is Esther a picture of an exemplary, faithful Israelite? No, she's not. She is not. Okay. Um, she's a reluctant hero at best. And you do know what she was required to do. when Uncle Mordecai put her forward among the beautiful women of the land. Unless you just want to whitewash what the Bible says, she enters into the king's harem and spends the night with the king. Enter Daniel. Esther is a foil... To Daniel. Is Daniel an exemplary Hebrew in the land of Babylon? Yes. He will not even eat the king's food or drink the king's wine. He is determined to keep himself absolutely pure according to Torah. And he's model. He is a model example. He is in a sense um, so Esther is a foil. Es- God uses Esther, all right? By the way, there's something that should tip you off to the fact that, that even though Esther and Mordecai end up being the reluctant heroes, Esther far more than Mordecai, but end up being the reluctant heroes um, that, that were not altogether exemplary is the fact that God's never mentioned once in the book of Esther. Not once. Now, is this... Fingerprints of providence all over the book and the answer is of course, right? Right. But let me just tell you that Esther was more concerned about her own skin than she was about her people when Mordecai came and said, hey, you need to go to the king and plead on behalf of the people. I can't do that. They're gonna kill everybody, Esther. Well, you know what? If I go and do that and I've not been summoned, I'll get killed. Mordecai has to actually prevail on her to do the right thing. And then in a, in a note of fatalistic reluctance, if I perish, I perish. Okay. Daniel, absolutely exemplary. Exemplary of what it means to walk with God in exile. All right? So, then uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, story of the return right? Thrilling time in, in, in the exile's history. Ezra, Nehemiah, return, yay, rebuild the temple, hurrah! <laughs> There's nothing inspiring about it. Ezra's a great guy, Nehemiah's a great guy, but guess what? The number of people that return in the three different waves of returnees is actually small which what that means is that you have all kinds of Jews spread throughout what now is known as the Diaspora, who when they had opportunity to return, most of them, like Esther, actually chose to stay. So all of the promises of restoration only appeals to a few 10,000s of people. They come back. What do they do? Under Ezra Nehemiah, they they, they get to work and build the temple and start to worship God all over again, right? Not exactly. They lay the foundation. They get scared. They don't finish the project. That foundation stays just like that for 15 years. While they're building nice houses for themselves, what does it take? It takes the ministry of Zechariah and Haggai to come and to motivate them to do what they're supposed to do. They finish the temple and everybody goes, whoa, what an awesome temple, right? Not exactly. Only the only people that thought it was an awesome temple are those that never saw Solomon's temple, Those that actually saw, so there's a 70 year span. Those who actually saw Solomon's temple, they're looking at this and they're like, this is puny. And so the shouts of the people that were excited is mixed with the the groans and the grief and the cries of those who are saying, this is our temple. This is the house of our God, and then here's the glorious thing, is that Haggai basically says, you know what, there's going to come another temple that's going to be actually greater in glory. And by the way, it's not a temple that's going to be made with human hands. It's going to be the coming of the Son of God who tabernacles among us in human flesh. So anyway, I know I've gone like way far from what I didn't even get through a page of notes here, but that's okay. So let me just let me just close with with this. So, um, so who's who's the restored Davidic ruler during Ezra and Nehemiah? Zerubbabel. What's Zerubbabel? A son of David. What's his role? Governor. Governor of a land that is actually controlled by foreigners. So here's here's the beauty of it. If you were a faithful Jew and you see this puny temple and this Davidic ruler, you're like, that looks like a storage unit. And that guy's just the governor. You want a king. But that smaller temple and that smaller figure, Zerubbabel, point to something coming that would be greater. Remember, the types of the Old Testament have built in disappointment so that nobody thinks the type is actually the fulfillment. Okay? second uh, first second chronicles history of israel ends with what it ends with okay terrible sad story what does it end with it ends with cyrus's decree go back up to the land right in other words the history of israel ends canonically with the exhortation of a second exodus and then what happens the new testament This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David. And so what Hebrew Bible does, we didn't make up this canonical order. What Hebrew Bible does is it sets us up telling us Israel's failed history and then points to the one who's going to fulfill all that God had promised so that's the review. I'll finish it Wednesday. All right? Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that all of your promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, even in this coming hour, that we would look to you in faith and hope. Do a mighty work among us in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.